From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks. And today, the entire show will focus on drug addiction and the growing destructive presence of fentanyl. But I still relapsed knowing that I was going to be using fentanyl, despite knowing how potent it is, knowing how powerful it is, and knowing that it could kill me. And the whole time I was out there using it, I had friends dying left and right. Um, saw overdoses happening all around me, and I still couldn't stop myself from using it. A 27-year user shares his story and the hope he is finding in a residential program. One of his counselors works to dispel the myths of recovery. Yeah, or, you know, you just move him to Alaska because the problems won't follow, and it, there, there is no magic moment. Some people would say, oh, that's synonymous. People do hit a rock bottom. But recovery is very seldom done unsupported. People can have a moment where they realize they need to change, but the, the surrounding pieces have to exist. And a mother of an addict has become an advocate and an activist looking to shed light on some of the unknown realities of life addicted to drugs. Because drug use and behaviors go hand in hand. People can stop drugs, but if they don't change the behaviors, if they continue in the same environments and doing the same things, they're likely going to succumb to drug use again. Next Thursday, Buffalo Toronto Public Media will host a special screening of the upcoming PBS documentary, Love in the Time of Fentanyl. Community organizations will be on hand to share insights and information. Food will be provided at this free event. Registration information can be found at WNED.org. Our conversations start in Sanborn, New York, where Nick Gazzoli is the Senior Program Director at Horizon Village. So you took me on a little bit of a tour to kind of get an idea of, of what the residents here, um, how they live, how they go about doing things, but why don't we talk about who is here? Uh, your sons, your brothers, uh, your fathers, your cousins, your neighbors. Uh, these are kids that your kids go to school with. And in the worst example, they're your kids who are here. These are people who are putting their lives back together, who've been through a terribly arduous time, but are at the precipice of making tremendous change. Uh, we have a gentleman who's arriving today, so he's at the you know, kind of day one on his journey. We also have a gentleman who you saw on the tour is leaving today and moving on to the next phase. So who's here are just people reintegrating back into society to become the best versions of themselves. And interesting to mention that the gentleman that is leaving today has been here about a year. I've been here about a year, yeah. I mean, people move at different paces and they hit their milestones. When you have a recovery community, some people move faster than others. Sometimes medication is needed. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you have more mental health that needs to be addressed. Sometimes, you know, you have parts of physical or spiritual wellness that get addressed while they're here. Foundations for recovery through education, uh, even through like a hub and spoke model of who we get them connected to in the outside community so that their housing is stable. Uh, to, to highlight arguably one of the most important ones is their family. Uh, you can get a person back, but if you don't help the family understand how to support their recovery, uh, you might be setting someone up to fail if you don't educate the family on what recovery looks like or what substance abuse looked like while they were active in it. So I think the, the people who live here are, um, they're, they're really our neighbors and they are our community and we are giving them back to our community because I, if you're listening to this, I'd be astonished if you weren't aware there's been a massive right. uh, opiate epidemic uh, in, through Western New York and much of the country. And um, I think it's finally getting more and more attention and becoming a bit destigmatized and 
uh, maybe in our face more that this is something we can address as a community much better than we were able to address in the privacy of our own homes, delicately managing the skeleton in the closet. Interesting you mentioned the the word destigmatized because this is something that has been brought to my attention and whether you like it or not, and I'm sure you don't like it, there is a, a stigma or a label that is yep. put on people who seek uh, help and end up seeking help in residential facilities like this. What do you hear and how do you refute it? The good news is the narrative's changed okay. a bit. Initially, there was always the, the kind of cliche typical stigma. Oh my God, you're working with people who are using drugs. And it was the, aren't they in the dark alleyways of the corners? And isn't this the skid row of our neighborhood? And that was initially kind of the immediate refute of, actually that's your son or that's your neighbor or that, you know, no, these are the ones who grew up in our society. And you know, for one reason or another, not always intentional, you know, went through a very difficult journey. I'd like to think in the best version of things, there is a destigma happening because our, our country is starting to focus more on wellness and acceptance. That's the best case scenario. People are treating wellness, whether it's mental health through apps or seeking you know, meditation or taking the correct medicines. There is a shift where we are more as a society open to talk about what we need to work on. And that includes the recovery community. That's on the positive note. Sure. On the flip side of the coin, I think there still is the age-old stigma where people want to be petrified of what their neighbors think and no one wants to know that their son is struggling so they, they hide it and they're petrified that the employer whose name they don't know, whose job they haven't interviewed for is gonna find out that Johnny was using drugs once. And I think that is an archaic mentality that still exists. Does it hold back recovery? I think it holds back recovery from the person who needs it, if their family is like, we got to deal with this inside house. Can't you just talk to someone? I've had parents before ask if, you know, and when I did counseling, can I just have the epiphany conversation where the, 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 the loved one just figures it out and then it's over? Something like you see in the movies. Yeah, or, yeah, or you know, you just move them to Alaska because mm -hmm. the problems won't follow. And it, there, there is no magic moment. People can have a moment where they realize they need to change, but the, the surrounding pieces have to exist, which includes detox, which includes providers, which includes supportive programs like ours, which includes outpatient. It includes the AA and the NA recovery community. So does stigma still, still exist? Absolutely. I feel, and maybe I'm naive and I hope this, it's divided into two camps. You're either progressing and it's 2023 and it's okay to work on your issues and you can take the skeleton out of the closet and put it on the chair and work on it. Or you're living in archaic form where you're hiding it and your addiction will certainly get worse because you're petrified to move. So when it comes to substance abuse, what kind of substances are we talking about? All, however, opiates have been the rampant. And then, which compounded opiates, was the introduction of fentanyl, mm. which made it a much harder game to survive, right? So fast, fast flashback. Sure. You know, I first start, it's 2009, I moved to Buffalo. Out of 10 patients, arguably, nine are alcoholics, some cocaine use there. Now it's the inverse, right? So now it's at least nine out of 10. It's opiates, but it's not just opiates using pills. Most graduate in a path you wouldn't have predicted you would go down because no one thinks they'll use intravenously. Absolutely right. But economics are economics. What cost 100 can cost 10. Then you start chasing higher highs. So it takes more or you start seeking out fentanyl. To clarify then, because fentanyl most certainly is a popular word. Everybody hears it. They kind of understand the danger of it, but it's it, it becomes a drug of choice of sorts. Potency. Gotcha. That might be your answer, right? Potency. Mm -hmm. e efficacy. 
which is counterintuitive because fatality. Right. But when you're in it, the things that deter you or I do not deter the actively using community. It's not that they don't understand the world or can't get back into the world of consequence, deterrence, common sense. But in, in the time, if you ask people while they're out running, as they call it, while they're out running, it's of no consequence because the, the objective is for potency. But many here will look back and count the loved ones they've lost, count the people they know who've passed from it. And maybe that's a bit different than it was a decade ago because you had a, well, heroin has always caused risk of overdose. The risk of overdose is exponential now, exponential. If you watch the news, listen to the radio, I'd be hard-pressed to think you just you haven't seen it in your face. We're at uh, Horizon Village in uh, Sanborn with Nick Gazzoli talking about uh, the programs they offer here about uh, addiction in general. This can happen to anybody. Is that what you see? You, there, do you it, see it, across it, across the demographics? Out who it doesn't happen to, mm-hmm. and you could figure that out. That would be the best business investment in the world because <laughs> then you would have the, the magic cure. You just have to be of this this form, but. It happens to everybody. Uh, what would shock people is if they were a fly on my wall for a week. And you can close your eyes and you can assume who you think it is in the privacy of your own head, but who's here is literally your community. It is your sons, it is the athletes, it is the students, it is the scholars, it is the people from affluent families, it is the people from more challenged financial families, it is from the suburbs, it is from the city. There, there is no one who it doesn't apply to. And I think a lot of people's pretenses well, as long as I'm doing right and I raise them well and I teach good ethics and morals or whatever their illusionary prophylactics are, make them think, well, it's not exempt. Well, it applies. It applies to all. I hope everyone knows that already <laughs> without right. having to repeat it. Sure. But to follow up on that, then, the story must be different. And maybe we can just talk about some of the different stories of how that step that step, that slippery slope that becomes sure to this bring someone to this point and maybe unfortunately to a worse conclusion. There's a, a phrase I'll use that it's it's almost uniquely the same. Every patient is unique. Their name is unique. Their 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 family, their story is unique. But it's the same in the sense that the the route of introduction sometimes has a common denominator of one of four or five things. Are you the person who started with an injury, who got introduced to a way to make yourself physically feel better. Then you may have someone who is just recreational, right? Your kids go to parties as they get older. Somebody offers something, hey, you know, want to try this? No, I know I shouldn't. Oh, come on. That's a that that's a storyline. A, a lot of people will look inside a medicine cabinet, find something, take it. I mean, there is no way to, to avoid one of those common denominators. People get hurt. They get prescribed pills. People will find something in a cabinet in the house and try it. And if they find that moment of I feel different or I can control how I feel, that's very much a slippery slope. There's some more uh, rhetorical ones, the wrong friend, right? That's every every parent tries to have a pulse on who's the wrong friend right. and is this friend going to create a greater likelihood of mischievous behavior of sorts. That's there too. That absolutely does happen. Talk about what happens when you come to Horizon Village. Sure. It starts with a phone call. 831 2700 831 1800 call us we'll figure out what step one is because it's different some people need detox you need a medically supervised bed we have to manage your physiology then you maybe would go into an inpatient program maybe you're someone who doesn't need that and you go to one of our outpatient programs maybe mental health is the primary issue maybe substance abuse issue they go hand in hand 
but I think it's a very individualized approach on what a patient needs. Maybe you're someone who needs private practice and doesn't need to go to group meetings. That all gets tailored, but it starts with the same phone call. So it isn't a one size fits all approach to your point earlier. Some people are in this residential program longer than others. Some people may never need a residential program. Some people may need medication assisted therapy. Some people may not. It just starts with us learning who you are so we can figure out what we can offer you. It's a, a tremendously advantageous that we can offer a multitude of services. Sure. That's the beauty, right? It's a multitude of services. But we have to hear from you as to how we can help you rather than saying, call us and everyone does the same thing. That, that would be bad practice, right? So nothing can start if it doesn't start. So it has to start with the phone call. A family member, if the phone call's not there, you have to sit down and call the problem to take the skeleton out of the closet, say you know what's going on, you've seen the signs, they're there address it and now to paint a grave picture if you don't and things progress people do overdose you know so it's you never the wrong time to start so your it sounds like your first piece of advice though is if it's in a family address it be honest about it yes but ask for help because if something's wrong with my car i ask my mechanic that's the person who fixes sure. it if i don't feel well I ask my primary doctor. Families are always the best intentioned. They will love the loved one in a way that no one else will, but it doesn't mean they know what to do, Sure. right? So the mechanic knows how to fix the car. We know how to treat addiction. We know how to put someone into a supportive recovery community. We know how to address mental health. That's where, yes, the family can start, but sometimes people just wanna do the best they think that they can. But if it's not your area of expertise, I, to me then the prognosis isn't great come where this is our area of expertise and the prognosis can be great. We walked past a little not little session, it was a fairly large group uh, where the uh, person who's been here for almost a year is getting ready to leave and it looks like it's going to be a nice send off and it's obviously a moment that uh, has to be of, I would think, great satisfaction to the staff but also to the people who, who are residing here. A hundred percent, I mean, it, it, it exemplifies what they're capable of. Um, it's a great moment for him. It's also a step. He will next week go to one of our outpatient programs to continue the work he did here, right? So if you paint a vaster picture, if you go into detox initially to manage your physiology, that's like stirring the concrete. Then you come to residential where we kind of set it, but after here comes outpatient. That's where they'll chisel it down to form. And then you move on forward and forward into recovery communities, which ideally are happening while you're here. but. It, it really is a piece to a longer puzzle. The goal isn't to episodically complete treatment. The goal is to not return to treatment. The goal is to put together a system of wellness that the only time I hear from him again is when he calls and says, hey, I'm doing well. And that happens all the time. Hey, Nick, it's been three years. Look at my kids. I got a job. I got a dog. Do you, hear, do you hear that? All, all the time. And when the phone rings and it, someone says, hey, man, I messed up. I need help. Okay, let's go. Let's start. That, that, that's the other phone call that comes, right? So it's like the yin-yang. We get that it's been five years, look at my kids, look at my job, so, you know, let's look at the promotion I got, you know, significant growth professionally. And sometimes it's, I need help again, and that's it. Sure, no problem, we'll, we'll start the process again. And equally are rewarding. Knowing someone can come back for the help they need is rewarding. Watching someone move into the next chapter of their life is, is of course, the greatest reward, Right. you know? Is there another type of phone call that occasionally comes through or? communication comes through that um, of somebody who doesn't make it, who's somebody yeah. who does overdose. What does that do to this community? What, what 
how did and and this has got to be for both staff and for people living here what what is that situation like it's tough for us as a staff um because we live here too we may not sleep here when we have staff that's overnight but we know them very well and it hurts when they pass uh an oncologist worked with cancer. Sometimes it goes into remission, sometimes cancer wins. I, I try to approach this job the same way. We're dealing with the disease of addiction. Sometimes it wins. It doesn't have to. But when it hits, it hits us hard. It hits us hard as staff. And we know these patients very well. And we see them at our best. Yeah, I know you see them at, the, at their best while they're here. Um, many families who come here are like, this is the first time I've seen my kid in a few years because, mm. you know, you're, you're they're removed from using. They're... You know, you're eating, you're sleeping, you're on medication. You really come back to life. So when we lose them, we, we mourn them. When the patient community hears of a, a patient who's passed, it can act very much as a reminder for them about the gravity of what they may return to. So they can be mournful and empathetic to it, hearing that someone's lost, hearing that someone passed. But a lot of times it level sets them to what they're fighting against because it's uniquely the same in the sense that this unique patient passed away, but they are in the same scenario. That patient was here at a group meeting six months ago, six years ago, but they're fighting the same fight. So it sometimes impresses upon them a moment of clarity of, I have to remember to take this seriously and that even though I'm getting my life back and I'm ordering some stuff from Amazon and my parents hmm. and I are doing better or I have have a job or something, it, it level sets that I need to continue to take this seriously. And those phone calls do happen and they happen often. Some, it feels like they cluster at times. But that's, that's part of the work we do. So the phone call of I'm doing great, right? So if you quote Mark Twain, a good compliment can carry me for four months. <laughs> the good phone call, it carries our staff. The stuff that happens in between, which is harder, we know is part of it, but the good ones carry us and the good ones remind us of, of why our mission is what it is. And, you know, it's a tremendous organization here that supports their patient, that they, the patient community that they serve that if we can think of a way to try and help someone, we do. Um, the, the agency is incredible with finding different avenues, technology to just help our patients. And the final uh, question is, and I think you've somewhat answered this, but I wanna hear you um, expand on it a little bit. Do you believe anybody with an addiction can be brought out of that and turned around? 100%, 100%. Nick Gazzoli, Senior Program Director at Horizon Village in Sanborn. This is Buffalo What's Next. We introduce you to Carl. As you'll hear, Carl is a 27-year drug user and has enrolled in the program at Horizon Village and, as of our recording, was 100 days clean of drug use. But as Carl will share, his journey is not nearly that simple. How long have you been here? Uh, a little over three months. Three months. What brought you to Horizon Village? What can you tell me? Uh, well, I needed uh, more treatment than I had ever had before. Um, in the past, I had always done inpatients and uh, never took the advice to go further in my treatment. But this time around, I decided I would uh, take the advice of the professionals and get some real treatment. I want to most certainly talk about what it's been like here, but you intrigued me with your saying that, hey, I've gone inpatient before, um, or outpatient, I guess is the description. Uh, 
seeking other therapy. What was that like? What you know? Tell me what took you to those areas, and you know what happened. Um, a lot of the time, it was being pushed into it by family and friends, um, just being brought down to desperate levels. But in the end, I never truly wanted to get clean, so I always wanted to do things my way. Okay. And uh, in the end, that never worked for me. Right. Um, well, like we, we say in, uh, I'm active in Narcotics Anonymous, and what we like to say is that, um, you know, when you're, when you're by yourself, you're in bad company. Mm. And uh, my mind is uh, my worst enemy. So I surround myself with good people, and uh, they gave me the advice that I needed to pursue further treatment, that doing things my way wasn't going to work. And uh, ultimately, I still didn't want to get clean um, until I had really hit, really hit a bottom where um, I saw that there was no way out of it, you know, that... It, life was no longer fun. Using wasn't fun. I couldn't enjoy anything but using, and I wasn't even enjoying that. So I was brought to a pretty desperate place and um, got a good sponsor who basically said, stop taking your own advice and uh, listen to the professionals for once. Yeah, I'm interested that way. How did you say it? My mind is my own worst enemy? Is that yeah. Kind of, yeah, that's, that's a lot of us could say that in a lot of different ways. But uh uh, do you mind talking about uh, your use? Uh, you know, I mean, is, you can be as general or specific as you want. I mean, can you recall kind of um, what, what brought you to this point? Um, it was a long journey. I started using cocaine about 27 years ago. And you're a young man. I'll be 40 in a few weeks, yeah. Considerably younger than me, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, almost three decades of using cocaine, about a decade and a half of using heroin, um, but the last five years of that has been nothing but fentanyl. Um, and uh, for years I was able to use, you know, quote unquote successfully. Um, I was able to get a degree while using. Um, I was able to go to grad school. I couldn't finish, but um, I accomplished a lot while using and was able to put on a mask, so to speak. And. Uh, got myself through it and was able to avoid a lot of attention to my drug addiction uh, although it was you know controlling me I was completely consumed by drugs but um, it wasn't until uh, I got involved with using needles that it really took a turn for the worse and I could no longer succeed at anything I tried and you mentioned that you used it as well and I think for a lot of people, and maybe you find this as well, there's a, not a lot of understanding of what fentanyl is all about. Yeah, well, um, fentanyl is a fully synthetic opioid, much, much, much stronger than the natural opioids that are out there, the, the, the opiates and the semi-synthetic opioids. Um, and its uh, affinity is so strong for the receptors that it actually... Methadone hardly works for it. It's required most of the people that I know who go or use methadone like I do. Um, I'm in methadone treatment. And uh, for years on methadone, when I was using heroin, the methadone kept me well for a day or two. And uh, with the fentanyl, um, I find myself getting sick half a day. You know, it's, uh, it wears off much, much faster. 
but it has a higher affinity than a lot of the uh, medically assisted treatments. And, um, you know, so it's, it's basically a, been a game changer. Um, I know a lot of heroin addicts are able to use, back when it was heroin, we were able to use, you know, once, twice, three times a day and be well. But with the fentanyl, it wears off so quickly that it's become, it's made heroin addicts become a lot more like cocaine addicts where we're chasing it uh, just as if we're chasing a crack high. Um, it wears off so quickly that if you're sick within an hour or two. And so now we were talking about using 10 to 15 times a day. A fentanyl? A fentanyl, just to stay well. Did anybody ever have to use Narcan? Oh, I've, I've used Narcan dozens of times. On yourself? Never on myself. Um, but I had a girlfriend who used to overdose every night. And uh, when I saw her lips turning purple and her skin turning pale, I would run and grab the Narcan. I used to keep uh, at least three or four in my car with me. There was, uh, I'm from Rochester, and there's uh, a street there where people used to just go park their cars and use. And uh, I was on that street one day and saw a man start to get out of his car and fall to the ground. I immediately recognized he was overdosing. So I ran over and Narcaned him, and it took four doses of Narcan just to get him to breathe again. Has has it been? It's been unused, used on you as well, Narcan? No, never, never, never been used on me. I've never overdosed. I attribute that to being on a really high dose of methadone. Okay. Uh, so how do you ingest fentanyl? Uh, usually intravenously, but fentanyl also smokes and it, it, it vaporizes well. So a lot of people smoke it. Um, there are people who sniff it. Uh, but most of the people I know who use it use it IV. Ten years ago, I don't know if I ever heard of fentanyl. Maybe it was well, even five years ago. Fentanyl was around. It was just in uh, different forms. There was fentanyl patches were the most common form. Uh, that was back in the days when um, pharmaceutical painkillers were, you know, overprescribed and uh, readily available, and um, people would. There was two different forms of the patches. One was full of gel. People would squeeze the gel out of it and dry it up and smoke it. Um, or once there was another form of strip that would get cut up into strips and people would suck on them. Um, but it's been around. It was just never in a form that was injectable before. And it has since been transformed into that. Yeah. How did you come across it, if you don't mind telling well, me? Well, it sort of replaced heroin. All right. Um, there really isn't heroin available to most people anymore. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but uh, you know, fentanyl is just so widely available that most of the people who are selling, uh, what they're selling is heroin, what they call heroin is actually fentanyl. I know I, I was told in my methadone clinic that um, nobody in that clinic has tested positive for heroin in the past couple of years. Every single person has been testing positive for fentanyl and fentanyl alone. It seems like you have a, a larger view from above of, of what this is all about, but yet it's you yeah. that you're looking down on. You've got a lot of work ahead of you, and oh, yeah. I, I'm not trying to underestimate that. What would you tell somebody else who's using fentanyl or is heading that way right now? How would you suggest that they, they proceed? Yeah. You know, this is kind of a touchy area just because I know for myself I was listening to all the stories of people dying, and I had been clean off heroin. I was still using cocaine regularly. 
but I still relapsed knowing that I was going to be using fentanyl, despite knowing how potent it is, knowing how powerful it is, and knowing that it could kill me. And the whole time I was out there using it, I had friends dying left and right. Um, saw overdoses happening all around me, and I still couldn't stop myself from using it. But for somebody who's never used fentanyl, um, man, it's just not worth it. it uh, I have lost so many friends to this epidemic. It's It's hard to even start to process it because... When I think about it, I have to, I almost have to just bury it or I would be consumed by it. There's just the amount of death. Um, it's, it, a lot of, it, I think that's why a lot of people are now opening their minds to, you know, drug addicts and the stigma of addiction is kind of being lifted um, because it's something that nobody is left unaffected by at this point. Everybody knows someone who's been addicted to this drug or is addicted to this drug or has died from this drug. People are losing their loved ones to this drug every day. We're at Horizon Village. We're talking with Carl, who is a in the residential program here, and he's been very gracious enough to, to share his story with us. To hear you talk about friends, losing friends, can you recall some of those episodes? One in particular... Uh, a good friend of mine, Samantha. Um, when I first met her, she was clean, and um, she started using painkillers with me. We were get, buying Oxycontins, and we were using them. And then um, I moved away to go to grad school, and when I came back, she was uh, a street worker. She was a prostitute, and... Um, I was in the neighborhood where she was working and went to go buy drugs and she came running up to my car, you know, and I saw the track marks on her arm, knew what she had been doing. I had been doing the same thing, but she hadn't known that. And, uh, you know, it was only a matter of two weeks after that, I tried calling her and one of the friends that I met the day we, I ran into her, um, when she wasn't answering her phone, I reached out to that friend, and she told me that she had passed away. Um, so it was really quick. Uh, there's another one. I and my my mom actually has a um, a friend's dog who passed away. It's actually her friend's son. He passed away from a fentanyl overdose this last summer and um, left the dog behind, and he's now living with my parents. You know. Um, there's just so many. Sure, and know. I'm sorry for your for your losses there, for sure, Carl. And I appreciate you you expressing that. Um, interesting, you talked about the the stigma of this. Do you feel that stigma? I don't want to necessarily put you in a place where you're victimizing yourself to a certain extent, but uh, did that stigma prevent you, perhaps, maybe at times from uh, reaching out for a certain type of help? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, there's stigma associated with my family and friends, stigma from my doctors. Um, I mean, the effects were different depending on how close I was with people, but I pretty much have no friends left. I either pushed them away or they ran away. Um, 
my family uh, is starting to come around, but they don't trust me, and they have no reason to at this point. You know, I have a little over 100 days clean, and um, but they've seen me go into treatment countless times just to go back to using almost immediately. And um, this is the first time I've had any more than uh, 35 days clean since I started using cocaine 27 years ago. Do you mind if I say congratulations? Not at all, thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really, uh, it's amazing. You know, uh, I was talking a, a little bit to Nick Gazzoli, and he was talking about how family members can come here sometimes and they see their loved ones in the midst of their recovery and how there's a part of them that is now back that they have not seen since before addiction be began to take hold. Do you see that in yourself a little bit? Oh, absolutely. And um, when I look into my parents' eyes when they come to visit, it, uh, it, it brings tears to my eyes because I can see that they whatever they're seeing it's it's affecting them like i can tell that they um that they actually do love me because when i was in the depths of my use there was a lot of uh, hard love there and uh at times it felt like i was you know was all alone and uh to see that love coming back was priceless and uh you know, i wouldn't i wouldn't trade that for anything can you take me through then a little bit, just uh, the 100 days that you've been here um, showing up? And I'm sure some of the days kind of bleed together <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> to some extent. Um, it, it's, been, uh, it's been interesting, um, you know, coming in and being the new guy and then over time slowly becoming one of the guys who's been here the longest. Um, but... Um, you know, I feel like I've found a purpose here. Um, I, I've been working really hard to keep the NA meeting going, and it's going really strongly. Um, we've got a lot of guys involved now where there wasn't for quite some time. And, um, you know, it's uh, it, it feels like there's an ebb and flow to it. There's some patients come and who really don't want to be here, and, you know, and there's patients who have a clear and um, uh, I don't know, just a clear a clear desire to stay clean and a uh, clear desire to um, to really work on themselves. But um, you know, it's uh, for me it's been an issue. It's been a, a, a game of trying to pick the right people to stick by, but at the same time showing support for everyone and. You know, trying not to uh, hurt anybody's recovery in any way. Um, You're a little bit of a cheerleader sometimes for people. I, I try to be. You know, um, I, I every morning I say I say good morning to everybody. You know, give everybody a fist bump. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, just ask everyone how they're doing because you never know how much that could help somebody. Yeah. And uh, it, it seems to be helping a lot. Um, for some people, I've been told, you know, you, you, that I make your day. You, sometimes you just make my morning. Sometimes you just make my day, and uh, you know that helps me to uh, to want to keep doing this. Um, I, I got to give credit where credit's due. A lot of my attitude towards this recovery process comes from Narcotics Anonymous and the help I was given by the people there. 
Um, but I would say that that alone was not enough for me. For some people it is. For me, I spent a year now in Narcotics Anonymous and only the last few months actually staying clean. I kept going to meetings and kept using and they just told me to keep coming back, showed me all the love and finally got me to a point where I s believed them when they told me that I didn't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that, 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 that'd be miraculous with most people actually, Carl. <laughs> um, so back to you know who Carl was 27 years ago. What do we do? We see flashes of of that guy now, uh, or is it too far back? That's too to, far uh, back. Um, yeah. There was periods where my use was, you know, re down to you know using cocaine while I was out drinking, which I hate to say is you know less of a problem but it, it certainly didn't feel like as much of a problem as it did my friends were all it's were still around at that point i was still having fun at that point and enjoying life um i see glimpses of that person back but I also when i look back at that person i see why that person ended up becoming the addict and you see that? Why? Can you expand on that? Oh, the the obsessive behaviors and the um, the belief that I was smarter than everyone, the belief that I knew everything and I didn't need anybody's help. Um, that's something that I struggled with for a very long time, and uh, you know, it's taken me this long to see myself as equal to everyone, and. Um, I guess I was very selective in the way I chose to listen to people. And, um, you know, when it came to people telling me that drugs were a problem, I never wanted to hear that. Um, even though I, I guess I always knew it, I just wanted to believe that they weren't, you know, and uh, wanted to believe that I was somehow different. And that was actually mimicked in the beginning of my my uh, meeting attendance where I thought that I was different. I walked into my first meeting and said, man, I'm different from all these people. Mm. These people aren't like me. But And now I look at it as these are my, this is my family. You know, these are, these people, I am just like everyone here. Like even here at Horizon, I am no better or no worse than any other addict. And we're all in this together. Um, at least that's the way I try to view it. Um, because uh, in the end, what I've learned from the fellowship is, you know, we are all each other have. Um, there is uh, no better help available to a suffering addict than a, uh, a fellow addict who's got some clean time under their belt and knows who's been through it. So we're heading toward the end of our conversation, and I probably should have asked this first, but I'm going to use your question. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm, um, I'm doing great. You know, I just saw a really good friend uh, go through his continuation. He's going to be moving on. Um, I won't, probably won't be far behind him. I'm looking to be leaving before the end of this month, moving wow. on to a halfway house uh, to continue my sure. treatment. Because um, I'm by no means ready to, um, you know, say that I'm, I'm, I'm cured. I don't think I'll ever be cured in any real sense, but I'll, uh, I'll get better, you know, every day I'll be a better person than I was the day before. And that's all I can really hope for. You know, I'll take this thing one day at a time. And yeah. So I won't ask you about any future plans then. 
Well, oh. or, do, or is that something you think about? I, I do. I have several options, but my, right now I'm hoping to go back to school, get a, get another bachelor's degree, and then possibly go back to graduate school and finish the doctorate I started. Oh, you did. Ago. Oh, you did start a doctorate. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. What, what was it on? Uh, synthetic organic chemistry. <laughs> Carl, <laughs> this is uh, anything else to add? You want you know? I mean, this is. I'll let you um, take take the stage here before we we close uh, our conversation. All I would really say is that you know, for people who are living with using addicts and you know, hoping that they can help them in some way, the best thing you can do for them is just to love them and um, uh, you know, be there for them because. Until someone is ready, they're not going to stop using. Um, there are ways to help them get ready, but the the best is just to try and get them to go to meetings. And um, uh, for me, the meetings are really what what pushed me over the edge. And you know, the the fellowships send a strong message. So, um, but uh, the worst I feel like the worst thing to do for an addict is to just kick them out of your life or cut ties with them. Because that left me feeling, you know, abandoned and hopeless at times. And um, you've got hope now. Oh, I'm filled with hope today. I've got a lot of great people on my side. Carl, talking to us from Horizon Village. Next, a mother turned advocate and activist after a journey of addiction with her son. This is Buffalo. What's next? Colleen Babcock's story is far different than what we just heard from Carl, but it is no less powerful. She learned about drug addiction the way many families have, through first-hand knowledge. And she's putting that knowledge to use as the parent and family support coordinator at Horizon Health. Addiction has always been a problem, but fentanyl, she says, has added an exponential danger to the equation. I mean, fentanyl has been around for forever. It was used in hospitals, you know, to treat debilitating diseases. Very um, powerful medication for pain management. Typically only prescribed in a hospital setting, though. And, you know, the pain management era, when we introduced hydrocodone as a Schedule Three narcotic, um, we started an over-prescribing regimen in our country. We were prescribing uh, Loratab and Vicodin for everything, sprained ankles, sprained wrists, lower back pain, tooth extractions. And it was noticed you know, by the DEA pretty early on, but FDA chose to ignore those warnings and business went on as usual. It was when a small group from Western New York approached um, you know, the... Uh, well, actually, Avi Israel from Save the sure. Michaels of the World started to make some noise when he lost his son to um, suicide. But it was from um, hydrocodone addiction. He couldn't get help for his addiction. And a lot has changed since then. But Avi championed for change with the DEA and testified in front of the FDA in, I believe it was 2012 and 13, to reschedule hydrocodone to a Schedule II narcotic, which tightened up prescribing guidelines. We could no longer over-prescribe. Um, and that kind of started to change the flow of everything. But by then, you had millions of people that were handcuffed to this drug who could no longer get it. And drug dealers were waiting, you know? That started the age of synthetics, synthetic fentanyl. Um, really changed the face. I mean, we always said prescription drugs and heroin changed the face of addiction, but um, fentanyl blew it out of the water. 
Do we have any idea in terms of numbers right now, let's say of, and I, I guess it'd be hard to really necessarily categorize, you, know, you mentioned underage drinking, the use of marijuana, but how about maybe just the number of kids out of 10 in, you know, in a high school who would be utilizing something right now that is well, potentially going to take them on this road? I can tell you, um, because I'm part of a community coalition that does prevention needs assessment surveys in communities. And really, there are many communities that are starting these coalitions up because they, they very much complement prevention programs and treatment programs because we generate data. And from prevention needs assessment surveys that have done, we know that 50 to 60 11th and 12th graders are consuming alcohol before their age. Like 25% of eighth graders are binge drinking. Um, marijuana numbers are a little bit different now because we're in a scale where we're changing from nicotine to dabbing. And there's that in-between question when you talk about marijuana consumption, a lot of youth do not look at dabbing as smoking marijuana because it is dropping a uh, synthetic into a vape device and you're you're vaping vapor but it's pure THC so there are there's a lot of data out there that supports you know the the work that we're doing in the research that this is a an ongoing problem that is getting bigger and there is a strong likelihood that kids that are consuming and using drugs in high school um, are going to go on to greater substance use as they get older. In fact, 33% of adolescents who use prescription drugs during the high school years go on to opiates later on in life. So there's a lot of um, data that's available. And again, this is information that we provide to our communities to make them aware, to just know, you know, kids haven't changed. Sure. They're all going to make bad choices. We all did. Right. Every one of us have gone through a phase in our lives where we've done something that we shouldn't do. What's changed is what's available to them. And it has definitely changed the face of addiction. It has made it much riskier. And there are families out there that are going to lose loved ones or go through a life of challenges because their loved one struggles with the disease of addiction. It's not an easy journey, as you, I'm sure you heard. Yes, um, yes, we did uh, hear uh, from a resident right now at uh, Horizon Village up in Sanborn, uh, taking us through his journey. Um, tremendously enlightening, very scary on so many levels. And, and you know, just to go back to maybe stereotypes and stigma, you know, here's a gentleman who you know, was in going for his PhD. Right. And I would think that you probably deal with parents who say, well, my son's on the dean's list or they're an athlete or something like that. And Yep. They don't understand how vulnerable they might be. Doesn't matter whether you sleep on Park Avenue or a park bench. How much money you have, how rich you are, how poor. If you're a judge, a lawyer, a policeman, or a surgeon, you're at risk. My son um, had seven brain surgeries between the ages of 7 and 14. And he, an adolescent brain that is giving very powerful narcotics is at higher risk. And if you have a genetic predisposition, you're at higher risk. And if you have a lifestyle where you associate with people who are doing drugs all the time, you're at higher risk. So there's so many factors that go into it. Um, my son chose recovery. I mean, we had, and I'm forever grateful for, we walked through the doors of Horizon 
in 2011. And he came kicking and screaming. He didn't want to go. Um, but he, he went into the program because he wanted to do right by his family. And, um, you know, we had an amazing journey. I learned about addiction, which is why I now work for this company. I'm very passionate. I have personal experience on my own journey and professional experience from thousands of families that I work with. And we can't promise tomorrow to anybody. But what we can do is help people stabilize and find a path in life that they want to continue on. My son worked recovery. I had a beautiful journey with him, and I'm forever grateful for that. You know, He did the work, but Horizon gave us that opportunity because we wanted to learn, we wanted to know. And even in his best days, he struggled with that balance. That disease never goes away. And you know, there's varying degrees. Not everybody who has a disease of addiction has the same severity. Some people might find recovery easier than others. Some might have more mental health issues that complicated. Some might be advanced in use. And, you know, end-stage addiction is like end-stage cancer. Um, but we were blessed. You know, we had 95% of our journey was drug and alcohol-free. Um, but I still lost my son. I lost my son in 2021, and he died of an opiate overdose. He was in a good place. You know, he wasn't out using. You always have your concerns. You're always, you know, wondering because I understood the disease so, so, um, so well. And what was the eye opener for you when it came to the disease? Like you said, you grew to understand the disease so well. Well, I think it was the education, the learning I did, the talking, the the doctors who were studying addiction that helped me understand how the brain changes. It's not a moral failing. It's not about choice. You it's know, the brain change. Right. I can go back to that first day and say where we all make a bad choice at some time or another. Why did my brain not react the same way that my sons did? You know, why did it happen to him and not me? How can, you know, you have families where all the family is fine and one person, you know, develops an addiction. It is about brain. And there are factors that go into it. You know, my son was an adolescent. He was given very powerful narcotics at a young age. He was high risk. I could see addiction ran in our family. Um, and for him, he would tell you in his own words, he went from zero to 100 in about 30 seconds. Mm. He liked how that made him feel. It made him feel like he could connect, like he was like everybody else. Because internally, he was not balanced. Something was not balanced in his brain, and he always felt out of place. And I see this so often with people who struggle with addiction. They're trying to find a balance. They're trying to connect with people. Um, you know, Chris graduated from college on the Dean's List. He had a great job with New York State. He was a great kid, but still he was not fulfilled in his life. And he wanted, um, he wanted love. He wanted what everybody else wants, health and happiness, right? And he struggled with finding that balance in his life. And he met somebody that was not good for him and ultimately... You know, it only takes once. And sure. I think that's what the DEA is trying to get across. One pill can kill just once. You know, my son struggled with a disease which put him at higher risk, but he wasn't out using. He was a productive member of society. He gave back to his community. He volunteered. He wanted to be a part of things. But that one time can change everything. You talk about 
your journey together with Christopher, and you, you've spoken to me about this before we went on the air as well. How about for families though? There's got to be a sense of for, you know, probably denial's a, a big part of it. Yep. Um, maybe feeling betrayed has got to be a part of it as well. Talk to those people right now about your, your child might be going through this, is going through this, what yeah. can you do? So my, my journey, I've been doing this now for about 12 years, and my journey has always involved Christopher, our journey. You know, how we um, rose above and the challenges that we overcame and how we moved forward and all his successes. You know, we, I remember thinking, you know, he would never be able to get a job or hold a job and we overcame that hurdle and he had a great job. You know, all these things that we see, but what I've also seen in my journey is, you know, the, the sorrow and the heartbreak that people face when they, they lose somebody they love. And we have taught society for decades um, that addiction is moral failing, that's about bad choice, that there's losers that, you know, turn your back on them. And, and consequently, we have thousands of people, millions of people that are out on the street with no type of support you know, nobody there to help them. I, I believe we've been sending the wrong message for years. I understand frustration when you're looking at a child who's, you know, exhibiting bad behaviors or risky behaviors and you're saying, just stop. What's wrong with you? Just right. stop. You know, you're ruining your future. You're ruining this. I understand that. But we allow time to lapse without doing anything about that. And that dialogue turns into confrontation, fear, fighting, arguing, um, everything that it shouldn't. And we ultimately separate from the people that we love. And my journey with Horizon taught me not to do that. Don't you know, you have to set healthy boundaries. You, you need to, because if you don't, it can consume you. You know, Christopher's journey was my journey. His recovery was my recovery, understanding. But I've also learned that we can get much further with healthy, positive motiv motivation, you know, consequences to bad choices, but being there. And we did that, you know, one thing I'm gonna say is parents, you have so much control with an adolescent. If you allow this disease to progress and lose that control, it is gonna be so much harder mm. because addiction is a progressive and it's a fatal disease. And when your kids are young, they're dependent on you. 98% of people that I work with, their loved ones do not go into treatment willingly. They go because of an external motivation. Either a parent is forcing them into treatment or a judge, you know, they're in some kind of trouble. But change follows change. And if somebody continuously exhibits drug use and, and the behaviors, because drug use and behaviors go hand in hand, people can stop drugs, but if they don't change the behaviors, if they continue in the same environments and doing the same things, they're likely going to succumb to drug use again. But if we can do that in adolescence, help adolescents stop the drugs, change the behaviors, while we have the ability to do that, I think our success rate will be so much greater. And the bigger part of that is that you'll have a quality of life with your loved one. Instead of worrying about where they are, where they're sleeping, what's happening, what they're doing, maybe they'll be present in the relationship like my son was present in mine. And I see that so much more with families that I work with, families who practice, you know, uh, 
a strong, healthy, motivational dialogue, but also set, you know, boundaries and consequences that say, if you're not willing to get help, I can't help you. I'm not going to continue to pay your truck payment, pay your insurance, bail you out of your problems, give you money to do this if you're not willing to invest in this relationship yourself. And let's face it, kids are doing drugs because they like how they make them feel, right? Right. So we're asking them to stop doing something they like how it makes them feel with no consequence. You're just asking. And the likelihood of them stopping is very slim. The final question is a question that we ask usually, um, we're talking about the city of Buffalo and we say, what does Buffalo need? In this particular case, what does this situation as it stands right now, what does it need? What needs to be done? Well, we always need more people to climb on board to be advocates. Um, you know, we, we've changed things a lot. When I first started my role, I was the first one in Western New York to do this, this type of work. And it was out of passion. It was because I watched what my son was going through and wanted to make sure that people out in the community knew that services like this existed because we weren't talking about any of this, you know, 12 years ago. Today, like I said, there's support services everywhere. You have to not be afraid as a parent to walk through the door of, you know, a, a school meeting where um, faculty is bringing people into the school to educate you about what we're seeing in the community. It's like anything else. If it's not your profession, you're really not paying attention. You think everything has it was as it was 20, 30 years ago. It's not. It's ever-changing. And the things that we see as treatment providers come through the doors would blow you away. Um, you know, kitchen cupboard things, uh, things that they can buy in health food stores, off the reservations, the dabbing, the vaping, the alcohol, all the changes that really are changing the face of addiction. Never before have we seen such a massive adolescent population in treatment programs the way they are. You know, we've added, I think, 250 beds to Horizon in the past years. Other um, treatment programs have added beds. Every program has grown to meet the needs, and we still don't have enough beds. So I tell family members, please just reach out and have the conversation. Get another opinion about what you're seeing, because as a parent, you're going to let your heart get in the way. You are not going to want to believe. And I can't tell you the amount of, it, typically, you know, I'll have a lot of mothers will call me because they're fearful, they're concerned. And the father will say, no, that's not happening in my family. That's not happening in my family. And it, it doesn't have anything to do with the dynamic of your family. It has to do with the world that you live in today. Your children are at risk. And the more you know about what's happening, the better equipped you will be to protect your family. Colleen Babcock, Parent and Family Support Coordinator at Horizon Health. We also heard today from Nick Gazzoli from Horizon Village and one of his patients, Carl, who was both brave and gracious in sharing his story. We also encourage you to find out more, including information on the special screening of the PBS documentary, Love in the Time of Fentanyl, at WNED.org. For Buffalo What's Next, I'm Jay Moran. Thank you.